It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio KCW Sitka. Today is Wednesday, July 20. I'm Meredith Reddick, and this is Raven News. Assemblymember Kevin Mosher is the second candidate to file for office in the 2022 Sitka municipal election. He's also the second candidate for mayor. Mosher is currently serving his second term as an assembly member. He has two years left in his seat, but now he's thrown his hat in the ring for a mayor's race. Incumbent Stephen Eisenweiss filed on Monday. KCAW News will connect with candidates as they file and will publish detailed candidate questionnaires on our website at kcw.org. In September, we'll host several forums and listeners will have the chance to ask candidates pressing policy questions. In addition to the mayor's chair, two open seats on the Sitka Assembly are up for grabs, along with three open seats on the Sitka School Board. The school board seats include a three-year term, a two-year term, and a one-year term. Sitka police are investigating a stabbing that happened on Sunday morning in the 800 block of Halibut Point Road. In a news release, police say shortly before 10 a.m., an officer arrived to find two men fighting at the traffic light in front of the skate park. The officer broke up the fistfight and arrested 58-year-old Robert B. Alderman for assault in the first degree. The second man, a 61-year-old Sitkin, was transported to Mount Edgecombe Medical Center. He had a serious injury that police say was the result of a stabbing above his shoulder. Police say the fight was likely, quote, a road rage altercation that violently escalated. Their investigation is ongoing and Alderman was arraigned on the charges on Monday. Angoon's boil water notice may be lifted soon. That's according to the city's mayor, Maxine Thompson. Thompson said she called the Department of Environmental Conservation after discovering that the chlorine pump at the city's water facility was malfunctioning. So rather than take a chance with our residents' health, we decided to call, or I did, decided to call and request that. The DEC issued the boil water notice at Thompson's request. She says results from samples sent in for analysis suggest the city will be able to come off the notice soon. We just sent in uh, three samples to our lab in Juneau. It's in compliance. We expect to get the official paperwork from DEC in the next few days. While the chlorine pump has since been fixed and is working properly, Thompson says unseasonably warm weather is having an impact on the city's primary water reserves. 72, 75 degree weather uh, is abnormal and it caused our water level in the lagoons to decrease and a few inches uh, decrease translates into hundreds of thousands of gallons. We've been happy with the rain and it's continuing to rain. Thompson says that if the water drops too low, the city's water supply, which is fed by gravity, will have to be shut off until safe levels return. The current boil water notice comes after years of continued infrastructure problems at the city's water processing facility. This winter, Angoon declared a state of emergency after a cold snap caused the plant's generator to malfunction. In Petersburg, lights and computer screens flickered last week, and then many continued on with their daily lives. But the brief brownout was a close call for a construction worker and meant the loss of thousands of dollars in groceries for one local store. KFSK's Catherine Monahan has the story. 
So this is our freeze aisle. Normally we try to keep pizza stuffed because that's the number one. Number one and number two, pizza and ice cream. And you can see how light they are. General Manager Jim Floyd gestures to the mostly empty shelves in Hammer and Week on Grocery's freeze aisle. Uh, breakfast is pretty barren. Uh, the juice, we lost all the juice that was out here. The freezer went down July 12th during a brownout. And by the time the store realized it the next morning, food safety laws dictated that they had to throw all that food away. Approximately it cost $30,000. The brownout happened when a fuse blew out on a power line along Mitkoff Highway. We had a blink in the system, and it was not normal. It was a fairly nice day. That's Carl Hagerman, Petersburg's utility director. He says a crew went to go check out the problem, thinking that maybe a bird had flown into the line. Instead, they found a man with a burned arm. He was working on the roof of Rocky's Marine with a contracting crew and had touched a piece of metal flashing to the power line. That fuse that blew definitely saved that man's life and probably another employee that was right there with him on the roof at the time. That power line carries 14,000 volts. For comparison, your household electrical outlets carry 120 volts, and even that amount can kill a person. At Rocky's Marine, burn marks on the roof and on the power line indicated that the current had grounded through the building rather than through the man, which Hagerman says was very, very lucky. Anytime that a contact like that is made, there can be internal damage to somebody's uh, person that isn't readily apparent at the time. It could be hours later that internal organs start to fail because they were damaged. The worker was medevaced to Harborview Hospital in Seattle. For most people in Petersburg, this life-threatening accident manifested as just a momentary flicker in their electricity. Appliances restarted, and the day went on. The small amount of power that your average, say, refrigerator or lamp draws came back without causing any problems, but Hammer & Week on Grocery draws way more power than your average user. Manager Jim Floyd showed me the control room. This controls all the refrigeration and freezers in the store. When that much current surged back all at once, instead of powering up gradually, it burned out a circuit board, and the store didn't know it because their monitoring system was down. If that had been actually running, we could have worked with AML to bring freezers in for us, and we would have pulled the product. This week, things are back in order. The shelves at Hammer & Wecon are once again stocked with pizza and ice cream. The worker who suffered the accident is with his family and is expected to recover fully. And Petersburg Municipal Power and Light is holding a joint safety training with the roofing contractor about the danger of working near high-voltage lines. In Petersburg, I'm Catherine Monahan. A graduate student from Colorado is spending the summer in Ketchikan researching totem poles at the community's Totem Heritage Center. It's part of their work on a thesis about museum decolonization. But what does that mean exactly to a museum and to Native communities? KRBD's Reagan Miller reports. Penske McCormick knows that as someone new to Ketchikan, they have a lot to absorb about the town's history. McCormick is in a master's program at the University of Denver, studying museum and heritage studies. For their thesis, they chose to focus on decolonizing museum practices. But what does it mean to decolonize a museum? McCormick explains. Um, a lot of times, uh, ancestors and belongings end up in museums, and they have been um, viewed in ways that are colonial, that are from a settler's perspective, and are about subjecting people to 
to be used in, in treatment that they would not have for themselves and um, really not having them represent themselves or, or have a say in the way that their belongings or ancestors or property are treated. Their work in Ketchikan is about totem poles and how they're presented at the museum. Totem poles are have always been this big subject of fascination for non-Native audiences. Through the end of August, McCormick says they're figuring out how to best represent the poles and the people that built them. What I'm doing at the Totem Heritage Center uh, for the project that I'm working on is really just trying to get back into all of the history and documentation that we have um, for, for, as many of, for as many of the poles as possible to find as much information about how they got to the Heritage Center and, and whose property they are, whose clan property they are, and uh, what, is the, what is the best way to represent that or to, or to view that. And, and, and it's, I'm kind of in the beginning stages of it now. Irene Dundas is the cultural heritage specialist for Ketchikan's federally recognized tribe. She's also worked as a repatriation program manager for Cape Fox Corporation. She says the local museum's collection is beautiful and that the center has done a fair job with their collections of Native items over the years, although there have been good and bad. I guess maybe, if anything, there would be, it would be great if there was more space for them so they're not, um, you know, confined in some of those. I think some of them are underneath the, the building. There are some elevated inside, you know, rooms off to the side. I think they need a bigger space. Dundas says she's visited many of the biggest museums in the lower 48. She's noticed that sometimes there isn't anything representing current indigenous lifestyles or traditions and values included in the exhibits. I think where it looks really historic, it looks like, um, gosh, are we even there? Are we still around? She says history has embedded a lot of trauma in indigenous people, stemming from boarding schools, disease, Western education, and Christianity. To start to heal from that, Dundas says there needs to be a way to reconnect with the pieces in the museums not just a small corner of the building, but in a bigger way. How museums operate could be a key player in that process. After McCormick completes their internship at the center, they're off to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to continue work on their thesis. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention ended its COVID-19 program for cruise ships on Monday. All of the major cruise lines had voluntarily enrolled in the program, They agreed to report to the CDC daily counts of confirmed or suspected cases aboard each of their ships operating in U.S. waters and to follow CDC protocols for reducing risk of transmission and managing outbreaks on board. On its website, the CDC says the cruise lines will continue reporting case counts to the agency, but the CDC will no longer share each ship's COVID status. Through Monday, the CDC had been publishing a daily color-coded status indicating COVID risk aboard each ship. I'm Meredith Reddick, and this has been Raven News.